on the old and the new, because that's the intention of these chapters, is to give us a sense on what was old and what God used back then and what God is using now, which is different. But all those pointed ahead to Christ. So this morning we're going to see in Scripture that there is a necessary change that needed to take place for men and women to have uninterrupted, actually, access to God. And we're going to look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 11 through 17 today. Now, in this section of Scripture, we come to the main reason for the necessity of a priesthood, that is one which comes from a different order. I already mentioned that the argument of chapter 7 and onwards is that we need that we need a new and, and different priesthood. We need a new and different effective sacrifice. We need another kind of priest. Uh, we need another kind of sacrifice. But let me remind you that, remember, the priest in the Old Testament was one who represented people, God's people, before God. That was their job, was to do that, that the priest is the one who actually approaches God on behalf of man, on behalf of, in this case, Israel, but on behalf of all men and women, that that's what the priest does. And of course, that means that our greatest need, the greatest need for all humanity, and this is where many religions, really the bottom drops out, is that they don't realize in their system that they need a priest. Not a human one. They need a priest. They need a a God-man priest in Jesus Christ. See, believers need to have a priest who can give them constant access to God and make them perfect. Make them acceptable before a holy and a just God. So the, the Old Testament method of providing for God's people did not produce holiness in them or perfect anyone eternally. So with that in mind, we needed something else. So the Melchizedekian priesthood is presented in Scripture as the superior priesthood that supersedes over the Levitical priesthood, which was only a temporary system, and it was put in place by the mercy of God as a way of access so sinners could escape the punishment they deserve for their sin and be cleansed so that they could have access to their great and merciful and almighty God. That is the reason why we need a priest. It is our greatest need. It is the greatest need of humanity. And through Melchizedek's priesthood, uh, we see that it is superior in every biblical way. It is reasonable in every way over the old Levitical priesthood. But it was only a type It was only a picture. 
It was only something pointing to the ultimate superior priesthood of Jesus Christ, that Christ is the anti-type which supersedes it. Just as I said last week, just as the living reality supersedes a statue made of, of a person or a photograph taken of a person. It's always the reality of the person that supersedes a picture or a statue or something of that nature. So the point is, in Scripture, it is not Jesus who, who resembles Melchizedek, this priesthood of the, of the Old Testament, but also but Melchizedek who resembles the Lord Jesus. So all types, all shadows, all pictures, when you're reading through the Old Testament, all figures point to the reality. They are all pointing to the reality which is Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek, the king priest from Salem, remember the city of peace, is the one who foreshadows the character of Christ. It foreshadows his kingship. It foreshadows his priesthood. It foreshadows his righteousness. It foreshadows his peace that will come ultimately in its totality. So why? Why did God do it this way? Why was it necessary at all for the old system to be replaced by a new system? Well, let me give you a real quick answer to that, at least for now. And it was this, that the Levitical priesthood was lacking, and that's what necessitated a different and greater priesthood. The institution of priestly service in its very design in the Old Testament was lacking. It could not achieve the completion God intended. It could never do it. In fact, look in your Bibles in chapter 7. Look at verse number 11. The first part of 11, it says this, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. Let me just stop there for a minute. There is a term used here, and it's the term, the Greek word that means perfection. And the word is applied in this passage of Scripture with reference to the Levitical priesthood and should be understood actually in that way. And what I mean is this, that if if the Levitical priesthood were perfect, if it were adequate to gain all the ends for which the priesthood was designed, then you wouldn't need a new priesthood. We wouldn't need something to replace the old. But wherever your thinking is going at this point, I want to remind you that the two main tasks of a priest under the old system, and, of course, definitely accomplished in the new, is that a priest, number one, He propitiates by sacrifice. He offers up sacrifices. 
And why does he propitiate? Remember, propitiate means to satisfy the one that was offended. God being the one who is offended. Lloyd-Jones says that it satisfies the demands of violated holiness. That's really what sin is. When we violate the very holiness of God, God must hold us responsible for that, and we are immediately under his judgment and wrath because of it. So God, the priest comes to propitiate and sacrifice in behalf of the people. And then a second job he had, actually just two in general, things came under them, was to intercede for the people in behalf of the people. Meaning the priest would offer the proper sacrifices to not only satisfy God's wrath and his justice, but also to pray for them to come before God on their behalf and plead their case. That's how God designed it. Because, really, God must be propitiated. He must be satisfied. Satisfaction offered to the offended God. A second thing that must happen in this process is that God, there must be a substitution. That the guilt of the offending sinner that comes because of sin must be wiped away. The guilt that comes because of sin must be wiped away before a holy God. And it must be wiped away by someone who is suffering and dying for someone else. Actually, someone who suffers and died who is innocent and they died for the guilty party. That's the picture you have in the Old Testament. An innocent animal, right? dies in the place of a sinful person who's incurred guilt before a holy God and therefore is responsible. So, see, there must be, not only God needs to be satisfied, he needs, there needs to be a substitution to, to take care of the guilt that's incurred. But there's a third thing that must happen. There must be atonement for sin. And re atonement literally means at one mint. In other words, two people who were formally divided are brought together and made one. That's really what atonement is. It's two, God being offended by sin, that brings an estrangement in a relationship. That means the division. So therefore, atonement brings those two people together. Why? Because God is now satisfied through the sacrificial system. And the priest is the one who is able to bring that. And then the guilty sinner's sin is wiped out before God. Therefore, another way to think of atonement is reconciliation. That's why we have the ministry of reconciliation in the church. We're going to tell people how to be what? Made right with God. They don't think they're wrong with God in the first place, right? But they need to be made right with God, and then the Spirit of God has to do that work on our behalf. See, so you see the grand end of the priesthood was to bring people to God. But it couldn't completely accomplish that end. It couldn't accomplish perfection. If it could, 
God would have left it alone. Now, but don't think at this point, don't think that God does anything in vain. Don't think he does anything in vain because he doesn't. God so designed it that way. In fact, God had it recorded some 3,000 years ago in Scripture. In the Scriptures, he said that there would be a new kind of priesthood. And he was so serious about that, what did he do? He made an oath. He made a promise. And he made the promise connected, he connected an oath with the promise. It's like a double whammy, meaning that God promised. He made an oath with the promise, meaning it's going to take place. And because God is a God who cannot lie, he has to do what he says. He can't go against his own character. So God made an oath. What was the oath? That the Messiah, the Lord... And the person, matter of fact, mentioned in the oracle in Psalm 110. I'd like to take your Bible again. Let's turn to Psalm 110. We've been looking at that passage of Scripture briefly here and there. But let's look at it again. That the one mentioned 3,000 years ago in this text is not one who is a priest after the order of Aaron. And it says in Psalm 110 look at verse 1 it said the lord says to my lord now there's something going on here there's conversation going on here in heaven lord talking to lord wait there's something happening here and it says here's here's the conversation sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet ever hear that before Isn't that in the New Testament in several places? It sure is. Look at verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And then verse 4. Notice, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And then it says this, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's the you? If you look at verse number one, the Lord says to my Lord, right? The you is the Lord. And we know the you here is in the New Testament from New Testament passage of scriptures is Christ himself. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who will be in the line of this order of priests. Remember, many, many, many years before the Aaronic priesthood would ever come about. But notice some other things it says in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 5. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, that this priest 
who is in the order of Melchizedek, is going to reign as a king. So we have the priesthood and the kinghood of Jesus Christ right here in this passage of Scripture. And it's this one where it says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He will not change his mind on this one. And he said that long before the priesthood ever came about. Now, someone may say at this particular point, well, this particular psalm is really pointing out to us that God always intended that there was going to be an entirely different kind of priesthood, not in the order of Aaron. In other words, God is going to give a Melchizedekian kind of priesthood and not an Aaronic kind of priesthood. And so you see from our passage, God is intending to make a change already. That the old is to replace the new. And on this he will not change his mind. This is where God makes the oath. Now someone may say, and of course remember the audience being Jewish, man, you get rid of our priestly service. If you get rid of the sacrificial system, we don't have anything. That's what they're thinking. They're, they're, they're in a sense freaking a little bit. But the author is definitely bringing home the point, and he spends much time to bring home the point. We're just beginning to grapple with it now. Someone might say at this point, well, if, listen, we have an exalted priesthood, that's the Aaronic priesthood, we don't need another one. It's working fine. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Well, look at verse number 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. The last part of the verse, it says, What further need was there for another priesthood to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, listen, we really don't need the Melchizedekian priesthood if we're going to have one that works. Now, they may have thought it worked. But it didn't work. Yes, God gave the Levitical priesthood to the Jews accompanied by laws to direct and guide it. It was a priesthood in high standing. It surely was, fortified by the laws that God gave it. It did bring people to an intended goal as far as their relation to God was concerned, but it was always only temporary. It was never, ever, ever a permanent system. Now that's the point he's made. In fact, if you look at verse 11 too, it says, for on the basis of it, in parentheses you may have in your Bible, the people received the law. In other words, the priesthood and the law kind of went together. You had to have both. Because if the law convicted one of sin, and now they were under the judgment and wrath of God, how is that person going to be made right with God? You have to have now a priest. And you have to have a sacrificial system, right? So they go together. So it says here in this text, actually it literally means that here's the priesthood, and on top of the priesthood, the laws. In other words, the laws were given to keep the priesthood intact and give it a, really maintain its authority as coming from God. And so that's, those two things went together. Now, I want to just remind you that it is referring to the Mosaic law 
especially the laws pertaining to how the priesthood was to be carried out. So they both went together. The priesthood, in other words, was good. The laws that govern it came from God. It was also good. Everything really would have remained the same if it were not for God's oath to make a change. And if in this particular case, who can actually make the change? Man? Could the priest make the change? Could the people of the nation of Israel make the change? Nobody could make the change. Only God could make the change. And remember, God already says, I will make the change. He will, he will promise it. And so we see here, you see again that it was God long ago prior to the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood, which he says, there will be a change in the priesthood. And I keep saying the word change. Where am I getting the idea from? Look at verse 12 of chapter 7. It says this, For when the priesthood is changed, see that? When the priesthood is changed, actually in verse 12 too, if you read on, it says, Of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So definitely, He's talking here about something that will be changed. It's actually the word, we get the word metamorphosis. Something that is transformed. That's the root there. Something that is going to have a complete change. This is not just a few minor corrections in some things that they're doing. This is not anything that is small. This is a huge, huge change, in fact. The question has to be asked at this point, to what extent will the change be? The answer to the question is the change was a complete termination of the Aaronic priesthood. Wow. The Aaronic priesthood is to supersede, is to be superseded by the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, for the new priesthood to be in place and the new order to be in place demanded really a change in four areas, if I want to say it like that. Let's look at that. The four areas are, number one, there had to be change in the law. In verse number 7 or verse 11, in uh, chapter 7, it says there, there's a change in the law. There must be a change actually in the priesthood and the law's which governed the priesthood, it says in verse number 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. All right, and who can change the law? The only one who could change the law is the lawgiver. That is God himself. See, in the whole law of Moses, as far as it was the rule of worship and obedience for the people of God, for it was the laws that governed the priesthood. The whole administration of law included several things, the, really the expiation of sin by sacrifice, the solemn worship of God, and the tabernacle and the temple, and the absolute dependency of the Aaronic priesthood to offer sacrifice to God 
and lead in the observance of divine worship. Remember, they were to lead the people to God. Now, consequently, if the priesthood is abolished and taken away, well, then the law that governed the whole system becomes useless. God is the only one who makes such a change. But when the change is made, it's complete. It's like when Paul said to the, uh, to the Colossians, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And what did he do with it? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. When Christ did that, when he nailed it to the cross, the very thing that condemns us, the law that condemns us, everything has changed. Matter of fact, change was completed at the cross. When the Lord said it is finished, change is completed. And it had to do with the law. A second thing that needed to change was the tribe in which this high priest would come from. Well, before I look at the passages, I want you to think of this for a minute. To a Hebrew, the most difficult question in their mind when it comes uh, to this particular matter is this. How could Christ be a priest at all, seeing he was of Judah's tribe and not Levi's tribe? In fact, one of the best kings in Judah, King Uzziah. Remember that guy who reigned for 50 years? Well, he did something that he shouldn't have done. All right? He attempted to officiate at the altar that only the priests were allowed to do, and what happened, he was struck with leprosy. Let me just give you the story behind that. Uzziah, the king, had really hardly passed his 40th year in his kingship when great personal calamity overtook him. In the early part of his career, Uzziah had enjoyed really godly counsel from Zechariah. Zechariah would come alongside of him, and Zechariah would give him constant counsel. And we know Zechariah says about him who had understanding in the vision of God, meaning that God spoke uh, to Zechariah, and Zechariah would then speak to the king. And many times that you'll see the system in the Old Testament is that when God had a king, he also had a prophet around, right? And when God wanted to speak, he didn't speak directly to the king. He spoke to the prophet. The prophet went to the king, and the king would say with his bony finger in his face, thus says the Lord. And the king, of course, he could either obey what the prophet said. Most of the time, what did they do? They killed the prophet, right? Why? Because the prophets were annoying. The prophets always did things that the kings didn't want to do. The prophets didn't want to hear the counsel that God was against them and not for them. That if you go to battle, you're going to lose. Even though your prophets say go and you win. Didn't like to hear that. So many times what you'll find in Scripture is they killed the prophets. When Zechariah was gone. Because Zechariah used to say to Uzziah the king, set yourself to seek God. Make that your goal as the king. And he did that. When Zechariah died, 
His heart was lifted up with pride, the Bible tells us. And he trespassed against God. In fact, remember that the worldly kingdoms of the east, all surrounding Judah and Israel, had taken the habit of exercising priestly as well as royal functions. Uzziah was taking the world's advice on this one. He should have known that the priesthood was granted and confined to the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, of which he was not. He was from the tribe of Judah. All other tribes were excluded, and his own tribe of Judah was also excluded. Didn't matter whether you're the king. You're not given the authority by God to go offer anything in, before God in the temple. So Uzziah determined to exercise what he, he may have thought was a royal prerogative in burning incense on the golden altar of the temple. And that's what he planned to do. And we find in Scripture that Azariah, the high priest, with 80 others, tried to persuade the king, don't do it. Don't do this. This is not your responsibility. I know you're the king and you can put us to death and all that kind of stuff, but no, don't do this. This is not, You're not from the tribe of Levi. You're not a priest. Don't do this. But the king was only angry with them. He pressed forward with the incense in his hand and right in the very act of scattering the incense over the coals while yet in his anger white spots started forming on his forehead. Smitten in conscience and then finally thrown out by the priests, he rushed away and was a leper until the day he died. So my point is that if a king of Judah, a very powerful, very well-liked king of Judah, tried to carry out priestly responsibilities and this was the result then the conclusion would be that listen the kings of judah by law were not given the priestly responsibilities and therefore if they took them they would be definitely smitten or destroyed or killed by god because it wasn't their place but see that's why god had to make the change He changed the law. He changed the requirement. Look at verse 13 of chapter 7. What it says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended, was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. In other words, the one who is going to be the Melchizedekian high priest, or what it it points to, is going to be one who is not from the priestly tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. Now, This can be easily proved from Scripture that Jesus' parents were publicly enrolled from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. All you got to do is go to chapter 1 of Luke, and you'll see that Joseph, 
also went up from Galilee, Galilee it says, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. And he registered his wife, his wife to be married, him being engaged at that point, and of course, she was with child, and that was Jesus Christ, and he was from what? The line of Judah. He came from David. He came from the kingly line. But Jesus came from the order of Melchizedek that came before the Levitical priesthood. And God said he was going to make the change. Here's a third change in verse 15 and 16 that had to be made, and that's the change in term and duration. The change in term and duration. Look what it says, and this is clearer still, verse 15. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Wow, that's a powerful phrase right there in Scripture. And that is the difference that we have when it comes to being in the line of law or being in the line of life. That in Hebrews 7, verse 16, the two priesthoods are compared. The Levitical priesthood to Christ priesthood the levites were made priests according to the law of a carnal commandment but christ was made a priest according to the power of an endless life see the two actually are really opposed opposites in in, to each other the first was made by flesh and was therefore transitory, something that must eventually decompose and pass away. Anything that's connected to the flesh is going to be something temporary. It's going to be something that passes away, and actually, he actually uses the word uh, sarcos here, meaning the flesh in Scripture, that that was going to finally decompose and pass away, and he had to, he was referring to how they were chosen to be priests, according to the law, according to the human lineage that they came from, the line of Aaron. Whereas the life of Christ is indestructible. It's endless. Christ's priesthood is therefore eternal, having been tasted by death and having passed through it unscathed. And you notice the term here, according to the power of an indestructible life. Endless life. That means that Jesus' life cannot be destroyed. It cannot be dissolved. It cannot be ended. No death could dissolve and destroy this life when this priest sacrificed himself as the Lamb of God. Therefore, Jesus became a priest in accord with the power of of a life that could not be dissolved at all whatsoever, a power inherent in himself. It is like no other priest. That's why when you get to the New Testament, specifically in places like the Gospel of John, listen to what it says in John 1.4. In him was what? Life. And the life was the light of men. It says in John 5.26, for 
just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave the Son to have life in Himself. He has a life inherent in Himself. It doesn't come from anywhere else, from anyone else. He has it. Now, of course, you can see the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ, bleeding through this passage of Scripture. But remember, it is our benefit that this high priest could not be destroyed in death. Because it says in Scripture in John 3.15, so that whoever believes in Him will have what? Eternal life. See, that's the benefit that we receive from this high priest, from this new order. And you find it all over Scripture. It's even when Simon Peter, remember in John chapter 6, Simon Peter answered him, and the Lord said to the the disciples, you're going to leave me too? The multitude left me, you're going to leave me? And this is what Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of what? Eternal life. He saw in Christ inherent life. He saw the miracles. He saw the power of what the Lord did. He saw something he never saw in anybody, any any other man. Even in John 11, Jesus said to her, Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the what? The life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's a great question. Do you believe this? Do you believe if you come to Jesus Christ, the high priest, who is from the line of Judah, who defeated death and has an indestructible, indissolvable life, who can intercede for you every day for eternity, keep you right with God, and give you complete and total access to God forever? you believe that? Because if you don't believe it, it's your damnation and destruction. But if you believe it, do you realize what you have? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am what? The life. No one could go to the Father but through me. Why? Because he was the high priest. And it's the high priest that has to give you access to God. It's the high priest that needs to take you there. I love in Acts when I was preaching through there. In 520 it says the whole message of this life. That's the message that we preach to people. It's the power of a life-giving message to people who believe. And it expresses a life that belongs to God, that is in Christ, and that is given to us when we believe. A life given to us by God, which we did not have before we came to Christ, and we could not ever obtain or get on our own. It also mentions something else here, that if we think through it, we would have to say this, that, listen... When did Christ's priesthood actually begin? Well, the word indestructible life here in this passage of Scripture, really, it it gives us a great hint. 
it must be after the cross of Calvary, at least in time. And death must not and cannot intervene. See, the Lord entered His priestly work in the resurrection. That's when He, what, ascended into heaven? Where did He ascend to? He sent it to the right hand of God, right? He sits there, and what does He do for us? He makes intercession for us. That's what He does. Look at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 7. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Why? He can't die. Verse 25, Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, when you get saved, God keeps you saved. And why does He do it? Because he's your high priest. He pleads your case before the Father. And not only that, remember this high priest is the one also who died in your place as a substitute, right? Satisfying God's wrath, paying for your guilt and all your sin forever. And then what? Atonement, making you right. You were wrong with God. You were against God. You're an enemy of God, and he makes you right with God. That's what your high priest does. So see, you, there had to be something new happen, or no one could have been saved eternally. The priest, the old priesthood couldn't do it. That's why, is there a priesthood today? No. There are people trying frantically to get back the priesthood in the Middle East. And the sacrificial system, but you know what? Any, any shadow or type of any kind of sacrificial system put in place is a denial, a denial of what Christ did on the cross as the high priest forever. It can't, it can't be duplicated. It can't be represented. It's done. It's complete. It's, it's finished forever and ever. And then there's one other last change that took place in verse 17. And this just concludes where I started off. For it is attested of him, Christ, you are a priest, and look at that word, forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Death could not dissolve the life of Christ because his attributes of eternity Gave him that power. In other words, he was the God-man in which cannot die. And he accomplishes everything. The deity of Christ bleeds through here that God is an eternal being, that God is without beginning, without end. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And I love Psalm one ninety. That where Moses in his prayer says, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
So what is the message of the gospel that's, that we have? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You have to have this in your mind. At the practice of the priest in the Old Testament, a lamb sacrificed morning and evening was only a foreshadowing. It looked forward to the one great act of God in offering up Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would deliver his people from their sins. And that means that all the Old Testament types and shadows was only in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And it will all be wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So in the final analysis, you and I can't really pick and choose. We are not to take what we like and reject what we don't like when it comes to the teaching of Scripture. We instead are to believe it, receive it just as it is, and by an act of faith in our weakness and our helplessness, simply believe, and then eternal life is given to us by God. So you see, the bottom line would be this. The old did not perfect. It did not lead to the goal. So it had to be abolished. It had to be taken out of the way forever. And it had to be replaced by the new. And that was always God's promise. It was always God's promise. Could you imagine if the Jewish people in Israel got that message? they would all have to come to Christ. Because you can't get out of the conclusion. So Jesus Christ accomplishes perfectly and eternally everything needed so all those who come to Jesus in repentance of sin and faith in his sacrifice in behalf of their sin will have eternal access to God which is Eternal life. I love that passage of Scripture in Peter 3.18 where it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God. That's it. You know what? That's the only way you're getting to God. Can't go over the fence. Can't come in through the back door. You can't develop your own philosophy of life and convince yourself that's the way I can go. You can't say there's many roads that lead to heaven and eternal life and God himself. You can't do that. When you come to Scripture, you're restricted by what the Word of God says about what's really going to take place. And if you believe God's Word in Scripture, then it is yours. You're not going to get any greater treasure than that. You can die with, with wealth beyond measure in the bank, and go straight to hell, and, yeah, and even have enjoyed this earthly life. And, but you can die penniless and have Christ and understand these treasures and go into the presence of God and live in eternal bliss with him forever and ever and ever. And you also can go through this life with joy knowing what Christ has done for you and live your life wholeheartedly because you see it in Scripture and that you know that you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You called upon Him to save you. 
because you knew you couldn't save yourself, that he's the only one who could bring you into the presence of God, and that's what you did because God's spirit was working on you, and he opened up your eyes to see the truth, and he's still opening up our eyes to see more of the truth of what happened, but it should bring joy to our heart. It should bring thankfulness to our heart. It always brings the thought, we, you, I, Lord, I would never deserve this. But you gave it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for my eternal life in Christ Jesus. Thank you. It starts today. It starts now. It, starts, it doesn't start when you die. It starts now. So, really, I am concluding this section because of time restraints. But I think you get the point. See, God had to do something new. He said it a long time ago, and I am so glad he did. Aren't you? I am so glad he did. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this you have done for your children. Thank you, Lord, for the change that you always, always said that you would, that would take place in time. And thank you, Lord, that you accomplished it. And you did it with your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You did it with one who is the God-man, who made all the requirements, who fulfilled everything perfectly and eternally. So, Lord, that our salvation in Christ Jesus, is secure forever. It's not based on anything we've done. It's based on everything God has accomplished. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And I do ask you, Lord, now that you would make us ready to partake of the Lord's table, which really has to do with the new covenant I've been talking about. That's going to be explained more in chapter 8 and 9. And I just pray, Lord, this morning that you would make us ready to partake of the elements in an honoring way, in a way that we have, we're ready because we repented of our sin and ready to partake of the grape juice that represents your blood and the bread that represents your body, the incarnation. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to always remember these things as we make ourselves ready this morning to partake of these elements. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.